This is the Dungeon Master's Handbook. Hello, everyone. Hi, Michael Shorten, also known as Chicago Is. Welcome. This is episode 36, where I'm going to start a new series that I'm calling Reading Unearthed Arcana, also known as Chicago Is Enters Into the Great Unknown. Um, I'm going to be taking a look at this set of optional rules that was published in 1985 by TSR for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition. And I'm going to be looking at it from the standpoint of would I use this in my campaign and share my thoughts about what I've learned as I go through this book of extra rules. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, this isn't something that I normally have done. Um, and you can ask uh, players of my uh, campaign, I tend to stick to the core rules with a few extras and options that I fell in love with back in 2008, 2009, 2010, back when blogs and uh, the OSR, if you will, was first really exploding and there was just a, a lot of do-it-yourself type of things going on. And I fell in love with some of them, like, you know, shields shall be splintered, the idea that you can sacrifice your shield to absorb a hit, um, and, and other things like that. But by and large, most of the tuning that I've done for my game in terms of changing AD&D has been to fit my setting. I want the rules to support a setting rather than vice versa, uh, because as, as we know, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons comes with an implied setting of Greyhawk obviously expanded a little later as other settings came out, you know, like Forgotten Realms and Ravenloft and, you know, Oriental Adventures and, and so on. But by and large, it was Greyhawk through and through. And I mean, there's, you know, throughout the books here, um, you know, Greyhawk is, is mentioned. So, um, but I took AD&D and I've made it work for me and the things that I want. I never saw a reason to get into Unearthed Arcana, and to be honest with you, I heard a lot of buzz about it. You know, it's unbalanced, and it's really crazy, and, you know, if you truly use it, you know, your players are going to become demigods and, you know, completely unbalance the campaign and whatnot. So we're going to see if that's true, and we're going to see if there's anything here that inspires me, sparks my interest, and uh, we'll, we'll see what... Uh, We'll see what happens. So, as I mentioned, Unearthed Arcana was published in 1985. And I did some digging into some of the, the history of it. So, according to Wikipedia and this really wonderful write-up on drive-thru RPG, Unearthed Arcana was TSR's seventh hardcover for the AD&D game, but it was actually the first book that TSR made that was specifically nothing but rules. Now, I kind of found that a little interesting because I thought Oriental Adventures was a set of rules, but I guess in thinking about it, it is more about setting, whereas um, Unearthed Arcana is um, 
is actually just rules that you could apply to any sort of campaign. I should probably look into that maybe for the next episode and see what the timing of that was, um, as well as like the book uh, Greyhawk Adventures, which adds a lot of things to the Greyhawk setting. But this one is specifically rules that you can add. Now, the source of the rules was dragon articles that had appeared since AD&D had been published up till 1985, as well as other ideas that Gary Gygax had had that he wanted to add to the game. Interesting to read that, and, and I wasn't aware of this back in the day, but apparently it had a very troubled release when it came out because it was uh, full of errors and things that people started writing into Dragon Magazine and writing into TSR and complaining about. Um, and apparently, <laughs> the November 1985 issue of Dragon Magazine, number 103, had a lot of it devoted to correcting Unearthed Arcana. I think there was a, it says that there were four pages of rules corrections, as well as additional material that apparently had made it into the book, but they went ahead and released it in the magazine, um, as well as some additional explanations and justifications. And perhaps when I'm done going through Unearthed Arcana, it'll be nice to go to the PDF of that Dragon Magazine 103 and, and see what they have to say. Um, according to the Achaeum, which is a website for D&D and RPG collectors, there were a total of 12 printings of Unearthed Arcana. And it looks like I actually do have the first printing according to Unearthed Arcana, given um, the layout of the back, the way the, the logo is printed and the, with the address and, and the UPC and whatnot. Um, I would like to add that inside, uh, Warren Johnson signed it with his logo. So, Warren Johnson, if you're listening or watching, I've got your book. Uh, you can write to me at chicagoiz at gmail.com and, and we can talk about getting it back to you. That would be really cool if he was uh, listening or, uh, or uh, managed to hear about this. Uh, the copy I have is kind of beat up. Uh, the spine's in... in you know, it's in worn shape, and, and there's a little, little tearing on the bottom. But by and large, the binding is held real good. It's, you know, it's still a very serviceable book and, and one that I would uh, be happy to use. It's 128 pages long, um, and that's content from front to back. There is nothing wasted here. The back page has just maybe an eighth of it with an afterword and credits. Um, everything else is chock full of information. Uh, it is divided into two sections. So the first section is the player section, and that goes from about page 5 to page 71. And then there's a Dungeon Masters section, which goes from page 73 to the end, which is uh, page 128. Now the artwork is pretty nice. In fact, I, I want to show this and I'm holding the book up for those that are watching the stream. This is the only full page, um, and here I'll, I'll put it closer to the screen. This is the only full page uh, artwork there, but it's very nicely done. There's no, I don't see any author or I'm sorry, artist written on it. Um, and I didn't see any 
attributions. Let me see if there's any credits. Uh, illustrations, Jeff Easley, Jim Rossliff, Roger Ropp, Timothy Truman, and James Holloway. Uh, I'm not sure who did this, but it looks like it's two adventurers fighting some sort of a demonic being or harpy or what have you, uh, black and white, but very nice. The artwork, you know, is what you would expect. Um, certainly reflective of the artwork that TSR was doing in the mid-80s. So nothing, you know, somewhat more professional looking than, uh, you know, what, what they had released for OD&D and, and the Player's Handbook. Um, you know, little bits and pieces here and there, um, but overall really nice. Um, so let's get into it. I'm going to start with the player section, and the player section consists of primarily discussing new races, new classes, and new character spells. In fact, out of all of those bits, the character spells run from page 28 to page 66. So that's nearly 40 pages of spells and spell information. Uh, so we'll probably be going through that for a while. Um, and it starts off with the introductions. Now, it, it's kind of interesting reading the preface in the introductions. Uh, there's three of them, uh, by Gary Gygax, by Jeff Grubb, and by Kim Mohan. Now, Gary Gygax's intro is extremely bombastic. Uh, you are about to discover a new and exciting dimension in the advanced Dungeons and Dragons world. You have unearthed the hidden mysteries of this work. Blah, blah, blah. Um, the AD&D game system is dynamic. Uh, da, 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 and, and so really sets the stage here. Um, the compiled material which lies herein offers fresh new approaches to play without materially affecting any ongoing campaign adversely. We'll see if that's true. And uh, it's interesting because you really get a sense of corporate Gary Gygax as versus gamer Gary Gygax. I mean, if, if, if you compare it to OD&D, you know, he's got his preface here or forward here where, you know, he's talking about what, what this game is about. Here, it's all about these are the rules and this is the way it is and, and so forth. You know, definitely a feeling of these are the rules and thou shalt follow them versus Gamer Gary writing in, um, you know, original Dungeons and Dragons. So, eh, you know, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, Jeff Grubb's intro, he identifies himself as a the design consultant, which is shorter than Gadfly, Ombudsman, and Kibitzer. Uh, and he goes on to really try to impress upon you that these rules were play-tested, then retailored, re-represented, and replay-tested. Well, we'll see how that holds up. And then finally, uh, Kim Mohan, or Kim Mohan, um, she adds in a few thoughts of her own. She was the editor of this book and uh, I get the impression she was really excited. This must have been a lot of fun for her and, and it comes out in her words. So that kind of made me excited to go through this, you know. Hey, someone really thinks this is really neat. Well, I'd like to see if that's true. All right. So very first thing is, is a new character ability comeliness, which is on page six. 
Comeliness represents physical attractiveness, social grace, and personal beauty of the character. It is used to determine initial reactions to the character and to characters with a high comeliness may affect the wills and actions of others, while charisma deals specifically with leadership and interactions between characters. Comeliness deals with attractiveness and first impressions. That's a real interesting um, intro to that. It, it tries to lay out the justification. Comeliness is not, in italics, charisma. Charisma, however, can affect comeliness. And so it lays out here that uh, if you have certain charisma, it'll affect your comeliness. And comeliness is determined much like um, your other attributes with you know, 3d6 or 4d6 drop, whichever method you decide that you want to use. Um, and it talks about as charisma is raised or lowered, then comeliness should also be similarly affected. Also lays out some racial adjustments to comeliness, which as you can guess, half-orcs have quite a big penalty and elves have quite a big bonus. Follows along with you know, standard D&D tropes. Then a good section of this lays out what the effect comeliness has on other characters or other uh, humanoids. And it starts from ranking these from if you have a comeliness of negative 16 and lower, then negative 15 and negative 9, negative 8 to 0, 1 to 6, 7 to 9, and, and, and so on. And it goes all the way up to a rank of having a comeliness from 26 to 30. A nursely beauty of this sort can be possessed only by creatures from other planes, demigods and demigoddesses and deities of unusual sort. Following that, it lays out some rules on if you have a high comeliness, it links it to a power that they call fascinate. The fascinate-like power of high comeliness is similar to the second level illusionist spell of the same name. Well, let's take a look at what the fascinate spell is. And conveniently, it's a new spell in Unearthed Arcana on page 67, for those of you playing at home. The Fascinate is an illusion phantasm spell. By means of this spell, the illusionist attempts to captivate the subject creature's attention and gain its love, friendship, and or obedience. The spell creates an illusion around the spellcaster that she or he becomes, in the eyes of the subject, a trusted and or desired companion. And the idea is that if you have a natural high comeliness, you radiate this fascinate-like spell, and it lists out uh, what will happen to those who are caught under this comeliness fascinate power. And that's really about it to it. Now, first, my first thought was, okay, so comeliness defines charisma. Well, does that hold up to what charisma is defined in? Let's go look at the player's handbook. <clears throat> charisma. Charisma is the measure of a character's combined physical attractiveness, persuasiveness, and personal magnetism. A generally non-beautiful character can have a very high charisma due to strong measures of the other two aspects of the charisma. Well, that's in AD&D. How is it defined in OD&D? Remember, AD&D was not meant to change OD&D all that much and just add new stuff. In OD&D, charisma is 
a combination of appearance, personality, and so forth. Hmm, well, that's kind of interesting. I, I, it's interesting that in Unearthed Arcana, they're splitting off comeliness from charisma. They're taking attractiveness and beauty from charisma and making it its own thing. And, you know, at first blush, it seems like a really artificial separation. Uh, you know, give you an example. What if someone took constitution and, say, split off an attribute called stamina or endurance, saying that constitution itself applies to things like poisons and resurrections, and stamina and endurance is for physical exertion? I think somebody's probably going to actually try to do that if they haven't already. <laughs> but for me, I'm not sure that's needed. Um, when I think of charisma, I've always thought of it as kind of an all-encompassing attribute to really encompass the effect someone has on someone else. Where Unearthed Arcana tries to make it sound like that charisma is strictly about hirelings and strictly about leadership and morale and comeliness is about your attractiveness, it feels artificial to me. It feels like it's almost like a solution in search of a problem. So that's kind of my first thought there. Let's go back to these um, rankings. So if you take the bonuses, let's take a range of your score, you know, 3d6, you have a rank from 3 to 18 possible. Um, if you have a charisma of 3, your comeliness is adjusted down by 5. So let's say you had a charisma of 3 and a comeliness of 3. That means your comeliness now is a, a negative 2. And if you're a half-orc, you also have a negative three applies, which means is that if you're a half-orc with a charisma and comeliness of three, you can now be at a negative, uh, negative five comeliness. But they give rankings to 16 or lower. I don't know how comeliness, and it's not explained here, how comeliness would possibly drop that dramatically. Maybe there's some spells here that we'll get into later that, that'll explain that out, but there's nothing in this section to justify how someone could get to a comeliness of negative 16 or lower. Likewise, if you have a comeliness of 18, and if you have a charisma of 18, then you get um, a uh, plus 3. So if you've got a comeliness and charisma of 18, then your comeliness becomes 21. And if you're a gray elf, you add plus 2 to that, which means you could have a comeliness of 23. So they have that ranking, but then they go into um, uh, saying, um, you know, you could have the ranking of 26 to 30. Again, I'm not sure how they figure that you could get that high unless maybe, like I said, there's some sort of a spell effect. But there's nothing here that, that, really, um, that really lays that out. They do talk about magic can mildly and temporarily affect the comeliness, but they talk about a maximum of one point. So I don't know. Maybe a magic item? Maybe uh, we'll discover it later. But th that's kind of odd as well. Um, 
So, would I use comeliness? Well, I had a question if TSR even used comeliness, so I went and looked at some of the modules that I have, and absolutely, after 1985, modules published for AD&D 1st Edition did have comeliness in them. An example is um, I-9, Day of Al-Akbar, the, uh, that was published in 1986, and NPCs did have comeliness statted out, although I will mention that uh, from a quick look, none of them had a uh, such a high comeliness that it was going to do this fascinate spell effect that they talk about. So maybe TSR used it, but I wouldn't. I, I, given the rule right here, there's really no justification for it. It sounds like if somebody wanted to play around with it, maybe they might want to do it, but there's really nothing here that makes me say, wow, this is something I need to add to my campaign. So my vote is no. <laughs> All right. Next come races. Now, what's interesting about the race section of Unearthed Arcana is that it really doesn't lay out new races, but it lays out a whole bunch of sub-races. Uh, so many sub-races. Uh, there's one for the dwarves. It adds the gray dwarves as opposed to the hill dwarf or mountain dwarf. It lays out five new elf sub-races, the dark, the gray, the valley, the wild, and the wood. It lays out a new gnome sub-race because we had to have more gnomes. And that's it. And what's interesting about the race section is the very first table, and I'm showing it to the folks on uh, on the stream, it's what I'm calling the no table, because it lays out the character class limitations. Pretty much, if you want to have maximum flexibility, you're going to be a thief, because every race with the exception of, no, even that, yep. Yeah. The only no that falls under thief in any of the subclasses of thieves is that a halfling may not be an assassin. Aw, oh, come on. I kind of like the thought of a short little assassin running around stabbing people. <laughs> that would be, that would be funny to see. Anyway. So it really sets out a lot of restrictions here. Um, the, the table itself lays out pretty much that you, as I mentioned, if you want to have maximum flexibility, you're either going to be a fighter, a thief, or it looks like a cleric. Um, if you want to be one of the new special races, such as a cavalier or a barbarian um, or an acrobat, Oh, no, an acrobat, you can pretty much be any race. Okay, so the other thing that Unearthed Arcana did was not only does it tell you no to what class you can be, it makes class level limitations even more interesting by factoring in abilities. There is two pages on how to say no because you don't have good enough stats. So I'll give you an example. So for dwarfs, if you have a wisdom of eight, then you can be a cleric, or I'm sorry, if you have a ability score wisdom of 15, 
then you can be an eighth level cleric and that's it. Um, if you want to be a fighter and your strength is 15, then you max out at level six if you're a hill dwarf, level seven if you're a mountain or a gray dwarf. Of course, as thief, it's unlimited, which pretty is much consistent all throughout um, the various races. If you are a gnome, uh, and you want to be able to go high level, say, as an illusionist or an assassin. Okay, now this is really funny. You can be a gnome assassin, but you can't be a gnome halfling. What the hell, Gary? Anyway, if you want to be a gnome assassin, then you better have an 1875 or higher uh, dexterity. Otherwise, you're capped at level 9. And so on. So the nose continue for a couple of pages, and then we get into character race descriptions. First up, it describes gray dwarves, also known as the Deergar, Deergar, not really sure how to pronounce that. Um, Deergar are defined in, I believe it's the Monster Manual. Uh, perhaps Monster Manual 2, oh, Monster Manual 2, according to my notes here, page 61. And it does say in Unearthed Arcana that typically Grey Dwarves, Deergar, are evil, but um, PCs can choose whether or not they actually want to uh, be that alignment or not. And it goes on to describe some of the... Uh, the benefits of being a gray dwarf, primarily related to being sneaky and to uh, not being or not living in light, uh, discusses how you can take advantage of that if you're in the dark or if you're in the light, um, you're, you're not going to like it if you're a gray dwarf. <clears throat> then it goes on to elves. Now, here's what's interesting. It lays out a lot of description of the gray dwarves and kind of gives some sense of the um of uh you know who they are and what they are about but when you get to elves they really don't give you a lot gray elves wood elves wild elves valley elves all get one paragraph and there's really nothing to describe them let me give you an example for the gray elf Grey Elves are members of a rare race that share all of the abilities of High Elves, including resistance, abilities, infravision, da 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 The two sub-races share the same languages. Grey Elves receive a plus one bonus to their dice roll for intelligence, giving beginning characters a maximum score of 19. Grey Elves are not as common as High Elves and do not normally associate with other humanoids other than Elves for long periods. They are thinner than high elves with hair color of silver or gold and eyes of amber and violet. That's it. Okay, so you had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs for Deergar Grey Dwarves, but one paragraph for Grey Elves. Wood Elves, pretty much given the same treatment. Wild Elves, or Grugak, Grugach, shun outsiders even more fervently than other elves and are xenophobic even with regard to other elven races because you want to give players the option to play a xenophobic elf okay it's an option and yet they talk about how unlikely it is to be 
Uh, valley elves are thought to be an offshoot of the gray elves, uh, but they can speak to gnomes. Now we get into something because they talk about the dark elves, also known as the drow, which of course were you know, well-defined in modules previous to Unearthed Arcana coming out. Um, but even here, they, there's only a few paragraphs. They don't really go into a lot about the Dark Elves and any information. They, they, they do say, hey, you can go to Fiendfolio, which is a nice call-out that they're referring back to Fiendfolio. Um, but they really don't go into a lot here. Then we get into Gnomes. And we have the Deep Gnomes, and I'm going to screw this up, also known as Svirfneblin. Svirfneblin? That's Svirfneblin? I'm sure you're laughing right now at, at hearing this, but Deep Gnomes, I like that. Uh, the, these were, according to my notes, were first laid out in um, Fiendfolio. And they were described thus there. Now, when I went through this, you know, they're laying out that they have standard gnomish abilities. They live, you know, deep underground and so on. Uh, player character deep gnomes must be males, since no females of the subrace have ever been known to take up adventuring careers. Why? I'm just going to drop that there and not tell me anything. Okay. Uh, da, da, da. The uh, player characters, deep gnomes, cannot converse with creatures from the elemental plane of Earth unless they've learned it and so on. When a deep gnome becomes a player character, he or she forfeits some of the benefits that derive from close association with the elemental plane of Earth. If you go and you read um, the uh, theme folio, they talk a lot about how the deep gnomes are, are naturally attuned to the elemental plane of Earth. However, and this is, when I was reading, this is what threw me. However, deep gnomes who are not illusionists do retain the innate ability to summon an earth elemental once per day. Okay, here's the chart. Die roll, if you get a, it's a d20 chart. If you get a one, you summon a 24 hit die earth elemental. Uh, your range, or your most common range, 7 to 10, 12 hit die earth elemental, 11 to 15, 8 hit die earth elemental, 16 to 18 Zorn, 19 to 20 summoning fails. If you go back and read Fiend Folio, it lays out very clearly that a deep gnome has to be level 6, and then they only get to do this potentially 50% of the time. Whereas here... When you first read it, it sounds like that doesn't matter what level you are, you can summon an earth elemental once per day. Now, the next sentence, it says, when a non-illusionist reads sixth level in any class, he or she can perform this feat in a fashion similar to the magic user spell Conjure Elemental. When you put those two together, then you kind of understand that they're, they were trying to say the same rule, but the way it's written really makes it seem like, well... Until you reach 6th level, you can do the summoning, but once you get to 6th level, you can do it like a spell. It's kind of odd. Fiendfolio, I like the way they laid it out very clearly. You don't get that ability. But even at 6th level, you only have a 10% chance of failing this spell. Whereas in Fiendfolio, it was a 50-50 shot whether this was going to work or not anyway. 
you're likely to summon a 12 to 8 hit die earth elemental. That's pretty intense. You know, if I've got a 12 hit die uh, hireling walking around next to me, yeah, I'm not going to take too much crap from anyone. <laughs> so that kind of raised my eyebrow when, when I first saw it. Um, that's, uh, yeah. So then moving on to some of the other races, um, it really doesn't uh, lay out very much. It pretty much says that, hey, for half-elves, halflings, half-orcs, and humans, use the rules as written. And we've got some nice charts on racial preferences. Then it goes on into character classes. So would I use these sub-races for my campaign? Well, my campaign already does not have dwarves in it. Dwarves disappeared um, two to three generations ago, and nobody knows what happened to them or where they've been. I did not rip off the Elder Scrolls, I promise you. Um, I do have elves, but in my world, elves are seafaring folk. They are drawn to the sea. They believe that they came from somewhere across the oceans. They've been sending out what they call searches for generations, and they still cannot find their homelands. Um, these elves here typically are, are, are laid out the typical way that uh, Tolkien elves are, being the wood, wood woodsy kind of creatures. So... I don't really see that I would use these sub-races of elves. Um, I do have half-elves in my campaign. It's rare, but uh, elves and humans have been known to, you know, do the thing and, and have offspring. Gnomes are not in my campaign, so I would not use the uh, deep gnome. So pretty much that portion of Unearthed Arcana does not apply. So what did you think? What do you think about comeliness and about the sub-races that were added? Have you used them in your campaign? What did you think about them or what didn't you like about them? Let me know. If you want to reach out to me to leave a comment or to just say hey, or if you have some thoughts of your own, I'll leave items in the or links in the show notes where you can leave me a message on Anchor, or you can actually send me a voicemail using Google Phone and let me know what you think, and I may include your call-in in a future episode where I'll answer it back. All right, I really hope that you all are doing well, you're staying safe, um, you know, if, if you need to shelter, I hope it's going well for you. Hang in there. This is really tough. We are living in truly unprecedented times. Um, the world's going to change. And I think that coming through it, take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and we'll be okay. At least I hope so. I hope things are okay for you. But until next time, game on.